Our text today is from Luke 12, 22 through 34. You'll find this on page 871 in the Bible in the chair in front of you. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? In which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as a small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Ryan. We're in week three of four in our series on generosity, God's generosity towards us, our response and generosity toward him. Um, and those of you who are guests this morning, I know you're here, you're thinking, of course I came on the Sunday they're talking about money. Um, uh, that's happened all three of these weeks. And so I'll say the same thing I've said the last two weeks, and that is money, for some reason, has a tendency to well up our emotions, all kinds of them. And uh, what I would ask of you this morning, what the scriptures would ask of you this morning, is that uh, whatever emotions you're feeling already, set those aside. Allow the scriptures to make you mad. <laughs> Allow the scriptures to do that. And when you feel those feelings, bring those feelings to the Lord. Um, the Lord uses our responses, our emotive responses to the scriptures. Uh, at times, uh, that's when he uses, um, uh, that's when he meets us with the gospel the most. And so uh, that is my encouragement this morning as we look at the idea of living simply from Luke 12 this morning. Let me pray for us and we'll look at this text. Father, thank you for the opportunity, as always, to look at your scripture and to not uh, try and mold it to what we want to hear, but to allow it just to speak to us. Lord, what power there is in that. Your truth is powerful. Your love is palpable when we just listen to what you have to say to us. And so I pray to that end, by the power of your spirit, deliver the message of this passage of scripture to our hearts, encourage us, convict us, command us, Comfort us with your promises. We love you. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
And so Luke 12, 22 through 34 is an extension. It's the continuation of the passage we looked at last week. Last week, Jesus was talking about greed, how we should uh, avoid greed, uh, the dangers of greed. And so what Jesus is doing as he kind of pivots toward worry is he is really, he's painting a picture of a life free from the manacles of stuff. He wants his people to be free from materialism. And so here, Jesus, if you look at verses 22 and then 25 and 26, he is turning from the topic of greed, covetousness, to worry. He says in 22, so he's speaking to the crowd, and that man yells out his question. He teaches the whole crowd, and here he turns to his disciples specifically, and he says this, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. Verse 25, this is the warning. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do a small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? So Jesus, I, I love this, this pivot because he doesn't wait for any more questions. And in fact, Jesus moving from greed to worry really is gr- strong evidence that Jesus knows the human heart through and through. He's anticipating that as we think about leaving greed, about having more and more and more to giving it away or whatever we're going to do with it, uh, not having it, we're going to land in something that's very similar to anxiety. As we leave the, the, the false comfort of wealth, the pendulum swings and we find ourselves in worry. The questions arise as we make that move in our lives to, well, what if I give away too much? (laughs) Or what if I give away something that I actually need tomorrow? These worries cause us to freeze, and in fact, they just keep us in a place of greed. And so one author this week said that worry steals our rest, worry steals our health, worry steals our obedience, worry steals our life. Another author said, kind of drawing the the line between greed and worry, greed can never get enough. Worry is afraid you'll never have enough. So Jesus is really talking about these two different boundaries and asking us to live in between them. Jesus longs for his followers to be free from the entanglement of stuff. Last week, he he was saying he wants us to be free from the obsession of more. He wants us to be free from that. And now he's saying he wants, he's imploring us to stop worrying about having enough. So what we can see here is greed and worry go hand in hand. And they keep us locked up by materialism. Worry, in other words, is a waste of life. It's a waste of our life. And the answer that Jesus gives is not just stop it, but he says, do not be anxious Why? Because you have a good father that loves you and knows what you need. That's his answer. That's his answer to this. And so we're going to look at each of these assurances that God loves us and he knows and provides what we need. Let's look first at God knowing and providing what we need. Verse 23 says, For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. What Jesus is trying to do after moving from greed now to worry, he's still asking us to redefine what is a need and what is not a need. Redefine need. Life is more than, or excuse me, um, it says here, life is more than food. It's more than what we wear. It's more than shelter. It's more than basic needs. 
I think what he's getting at here, what, what the scripture is telling us is, is another way of defining needs. What we need is what God gives us. What we need is what God gives us. Now, we tend to do that in the reverse. We tend to define what we need, and then we look to God to say, pay up. <laughs> we say, God, here's what I need. Are you going to deliver for me? And so when we don't get what we think we need, we end up saying to God, well, what's the big deal here? Why haven't you delivered for me? Why haven't you provided for me? And then in that case, he is wrong, we are right, and everything's a mess. Another way of looking at this that Jesus is saying is if we go without something, God is saying in the moment, we don't need it right now. We don't need it. What God provides is what we need. The author of Hebrews dives into this topic and he actually uses the promise of the Great Commission. Listen to what the author of Hebrews, and his is Hebrews 13, 5, and 6. He says, keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. And here's why he believes that we should be content with what God has given us. He attaches this promise. For he has said, for Jesus has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, says the author of Hebrews, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? And so the author of Hebrews is looking at that promise of Jesus from the Great Commission, the last promise he gives his disciples before he ascends to heaven. And it's not just a spiritual promise, it's a promise that has to do with everything. How can we be content with what we have? Because Jesus is with us now and forever. How can we know what he, what, that he knows what we need? Because he's with us now and forever. He's promised this. And so God's knowledge that he, of our needs, God's knowledge of our life and all the circumstances in it becomes a comfort. It becomes our contentment. To demonstrate God's sovereignty and provision, Jesus gives an illustration, several illustrations. First, verse 24, consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, yet God feeds them. So what's his point? Ravens aren't farmers, but they eat. God provides for them. And here's something we're going to get to in a moment, but it's worth reading. Of how much more value are you than the birds? Verses 27 and 28. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? The lilies don't toil. They don't stand in front of a closet and make choices of what they're going to wear. And when we do that, the best some of us can look is like a fancy lumberjack. I'm not going to mention any names. Um, <laughs> But they don't do anything like that. And yet God, what does he do? He, he adorns them in beauty. He adorns them in beauty. God provides for them. The last illustration, verses 29 and 30, the nations. Do not seek what you are to eat or what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek, that word there is wish. They wish after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. The nations who do not have God, do not have the love of God, do not have uh, God's uh, direct provision for his disciples, they wish for basic needs and they are lost. We don't need to wish. We have a God who has it under control, literally. 
And so what are we hearing from Jesus Christ? One of the reasons, one of the main reasons we do not have to dive into anxiety or into worry about what we have or we don't have is that God is not negligent. God is not uninformed. God is not powerless. God is not incapable. God is all-knowing. God is all-powerful. He provides and he knows what is needed. But more so than that, it's not just a sterile transaction. God loves us. God is all-loving as well. We've heard it already in the, in the ravens and the lilies. We've heard that, that God does these things for these animals, but what, what is the, the point? He loves you even more than that. In Luke 11, just a few chapters before, Jesus, it's the ask, seek, knock passage, and he says, which one of you, when your child asks for a loaf of bread, would give him a snake instead? And he uses several other analogies, and he says, how much more will God give who is a perfect and loving father? So even we, how much we desire to give what our children need. God loves us even better, and he, he, get, he provides even more perfectly than we do. In verse 32, it says, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's, what, good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's important that we, this is not directly in the text, but I think this is a great application for us. What do we tend to do? We tend to measure God's love by what we have in the temporary. What is my comfort level like? Do I have what I think I need? And if I don't, or if I'm uncomfortable, we start equating that with, well, does God love me or doesn't he love me? The promise here is not that, that, uh, that God has given us fully everything we'll ever need for, for comfort or life. It says here that God is his good pleasure to give us the kingdom, the kingdom. If you're taking notes, write this down. I want you to read this passage later, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. It's one of those passages where Paul goes off, not in an angry way. He goes off in this passage about how much God has given us. Words like lavish, words like generous, words like blessing flow from that passage. And so we hear from a place like Ephesians 1, what we're seeing here is that God, in, in his intentions and his promise and his power, has given us the kingdom in full already. It belongs to us. And it was not just something he felt obligated to do or he, he wanted to make us owe something. It was his good pleasure to do so. God's love is unfailing. His love for his children's not withholding. God's love and his gift and his generosity, the full inheritance of what we've been promised, are aimed at ultimate things, not temporary things. And we tend to measure what God is doing ultimately through the temporary, and we can't do that. We can't measure God's love by temporary things when he has given us something that is so much more mattering and ultimate than that. The way God loves us is that he walks with us through those times where we feel need. He walks with us through those times that we feel discomfort. And the reason that we can trust that he is there, the reason we can have comfort in those moments is because of what he has promised at the end of it for his people. 
And so Jesus is stating outright, God provides for you. He knows what you need. He has the power to deliver it, and he loves you. Another evidence that Jesus loves us is that he is talking about money. Our world tends to think that if we have difficult conversations or we say things that are hard, that's unloving. That, that's not true. When the thing is something um, that, that is a life-saving truth, there's nothing more loving than talking about it. Proverbs says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. And so the fact that Jesus dives into these difficult topics, not just once, not just twice, but on a regular basis, talking about our greed, talking about our worry regarding our finances, this is the Lord loving us. He's being gracious to us by bringing these things up. As a summary to what Jesus is talking about here, one author this week said that the birds of the air and the lilies of the field are a testimony to God's faithfulness to his creation and an invitation to live free from materialism's toxic anxiety and to live free to honor King Jesus and seek first his kingdom. Jesus' love, Jesus' provision, Jesus' overwhelming generosity to us, it really means freedom. Church, it's freedom. Freedom to do what? Seek the kingdom first. Seek the kingdom first. And now here's something I've never seen before, and it popped out to me from the page this week. But look first at verse 31, and then the follow-up of verse 32. So it says, instead of worrying, instead of seeking after or wishing after these things you think you need, instead seek his kingdom. And as we do that, these things will be added to you. But here's the relief. Here's the relief. Look at verse 32. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Here's the relieving moment. When we seek what has already been given, we will find it. (laughs) When we seek what's already been given, we will find it. So to seek the kingdom is not this mysterious path where we have to figure out our way. No, Jesus Christ says God in his good pleasure has already given it. We're guaranteed to find it. And so as we go on our way discovering this great and generous gift of the kingdom, we can trust God. We will begin to trust God. We will grow in our trust of God to provide all that we need for a life that is seeking the kingdom. So Jesus' teaching here is that God's generous and loving sovereignty makes worry a waste of our life. That's what he's trying to teach us here. The moment you've all been waiting for, what does it mean to sell all our possessions? You're sweating profusely, I can see it. Um, There's a glisten today. Um, Jesus gives a prescription. He gives a cure for money-driven anxiety. And there's two things. First, sell your possessions. This means use what you have. Use what you have. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, Cost of Discipleship, talks about a similar passage to this in Matthew 6. And he talks about this idea of selling your possessions. And he says this, earthly goods are meant to be used, not collected. 
Earthly possessions are meant to be used, not collected. And the example he gives is manna in the wilderness. Those of you who aren't familiar, the Israelites have escaped Egypt. They're in the wilderness. They're not at the promised land yet, and they are hungry. And so Moses comes to God and says, our people are hungry. And so God begins to rain down every morning this substance, bread-like substance called manna. Manna. And, and so one of the things that, that God gives some rules surrounding manna, and one of the rules is do not collect more than you need for the day. Don't collect more than you need for the day. And some people don't follow that. And when they keep more than they should for the day, they open their, not fridge, but whatever they keep it in, and it's full of maggots the next morning. Bonhoeffer looks at that example and he says this, if the one gathering manna stores it up as a permanent possession, he spoils not only the gift but himself as well, for he sets his heart on the accumulation of wealth. Here's what God is doing with manna. He's, he's definitely providing their needs. He also, as a God who knows the human heart, is training them to trust him and not stuff. That's what God was doing. God provides us what we need. Our earthly goods are meant to be used, not collected. Now, Jesus, later on in Luke, makes a pretty extreme statement. But I think it's good to bring it into this because in this context, it makes so much sense. Now, in, this, in Luke 16, he's talking to his disciples. The author makes sure, makes sure we know that he's talking to his disciples in the presence of the Pharisees, who, as the text says, loved money. And here's what Jesus has to say. I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of worldly wealth, so that when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. And he goes on to say, no servant can serve two masters, since either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, the Pharisees love this. They really do. No, they don't. They hate it. They're very angry about this. What's Jesus talking about? He is saying the exact same thing. Use what you have for kingdom expansion. Use it. Stuff is meant to be used, not collected. Use the wealth you have to bless others. Use the wealth you have to spread the gospel. Use it to care for others. Use it to meet needs. Use it to expand the reach of the kingdom. Now, here's what I want us to be amazed at. God is giving us, church, an exchange rate from temporary to eternal. He's giving us an opportunity to use things that cannot and do not last and invest in things that do and will for eternity. And so the command here to sell our possessions is an invitation into the mission of the kingdom. That's what it is. It's an invitation. Second, Jesus says in that same verse, provide for yourselves with money bags, which is a great thing to call someone. I just think that's a great money. What's up, money bags? Um, that's not what this is for. Um, that you do not grow old. That do not grow old with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail where no thief approaches or no moth destroys. There again is that exchange rate. What is Jesus saying? He's saying work for the kingdom. Use not just what we have, but use what we do for the kingdom. Use what we do to make an investment in eternity. Well, Ransom, I'm not a pastor. How am I supposed to do that? I, I sell things. I fix things. I create things. I lawyer things. I think that's the right term. Um, 
Listen, rather than serve your career as a master, view the output of whatever you do as God providing resources to expand his kingdom. That's providing money bags that do not grow old. Jesus finishes this passage with the statement that we probably all have heard, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The order is important. The order is very important. Where your treasure is is where your heart will follow. And so what Jesus is telling us is that we can use giving to guide our hearts to health, guide our hearts to trusting him more. If we use our resources to pad our life, then life becomes our love. That's how it works. If we use our resources to seek the kingdom, God becomes our love. One of the authors I read this week talks about how those two things work together. It's not just because money is our idol that we do this or because we do this money is our idol. It's actually both. It says our lack of generosity in the midst of overwhelming affluence is both the cause and the result of our idolatry. What does Jesus want us to hear from Luke 12, the passage we talked about last week, the passage we're talking about right now? He wants us to hear and know the truth that greed and worry, what are they? They're diseases that steal life from us. They steal life from us. And Jesus wants us also to hear that giving is a cure that frees us from greed and worry. It's not something we have to get over our worry, get over our greed, and then give. Giving is actually the prescription What we can see here from Jesus Christ is that the loving provision of God, as we redefine what that means in our hearts and our minds, and we see what God has given, we see what he has done, we see how much he loves us, this becomes a provision of God that frees us to live a simple life of kingdom building. A simple life of kingdom building. Listen, I don't know about you. I've been thinking about this a lot, obviously. I, I want my heart to be in heaven with the Lord. I want my heart to be in the kingdom set on eternity. I want uh, to trust God. I want to give generously. I want to be free to live simply with a heart and a mind and eyes for kingdom work. And really what I want, I want to be free from the drudgery of needing and wanting more stuff. It really is exhausting, isn't it? This is the way we were designed to live. This is the original plan. Think about Adam and Eve before the fall. They were productive. They trusted God. They had what they needed. They had no worries. They lived for his glory. They lived for his kingdom expansion. That's what their whole life was about. I don't usually use stories like this, but this particular story really, I think, encapsulates what we're, we're looking at here. It's actually very inspiring to me, but um, people who have studied John Wesley's journals, John Wesley was a theologian in the 1700s. Uh, he kept meticulous notes on his spending habits. And so um, uh, when he started in a clergy in the 1700s, he made a whopping 32 British pounds a year, okay? Now, that's around like $20,000 a year uh, in current... Uh, uh, Monetary numbers, there you go, there's the word. Um, 
In that time of his life, he lived off 28 British pounds. So he had four extra. He gave that away. By the end of his career, he kept these notes meticulously. He was making most years around 1,400 British pounds a year, which is significantly more. He still lived off only 28 British pounds. In his life, he never expanded the, the level of comfort in his life. He stayed with what he needed, and he gave the rest away. Now, there's something about his, his walk with the Lord that, that freed him from wanting more or worrying about having enough stuff. And I praise the Lord for that testimony. I praise the Lord for that testimony. Now, he went too far with it. There was parts of his journal that he stated that if he was afraid that if he died with more than 100 British pounds in his pocket, he would go to hell. That's too far. That's too far. And I bring that part up because we go too far with it as well. Giving doesn't make us better Christians. Giving doesn't make God love us more. That's not how it works. That's going too far with it. So why did John Wesley go too far, or, or why is that too far? Why is it too far for us to think, well, if I just give regularly to the church, I'm a better person? Because it's not our money handling, it's not our avoidance of greed, it's not our rejection of worry that make God love us. These things do not determine God's love for us. They don't determine his provision for us. They don't determine his salvation of us. You see, the Father, what has he done? He's already provided the essentials, more than meat and potatoes. The Father has provided something that's so much more lavish, something that's so much more luxurious than any amount of money could ever buy. It's ours already. In his unfading love for his children, he provided us with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Not a set of rules to live by, and if we're successful, we go to heaven. If we fail, we go to hell. No, he gave us Jesus Christ. He gave us the satisfactory work of Jesus Christ. He gave us the awful but invaluable death of Jesus Christ. He gave us the glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so church, what Jesus is trying to teach us and what he was teaching his disciples and the crowd back in Luke 12, what he's teaching us now is that in Christ, we truly have all that we need. Amen, I like that. Whatever she said. I know she's agreeing. The Lord's Supper is yet another provision. It's a sign of that provision of Jesus Christ by our loving Father. Here we have bread and we have juice or wine. And what he has done is he's given us this physical reminder of a spiritual truth. a physical reminder and a spiritual truth that his power transcends our needs in both the physical and the spiritual. We're going to eat bread, which is physical, but it stands for something spiritual. We're going to drink wine or juice, which is physical, and it stands for something spiritual and eternal. And it's a reminder that God does not forsake our souls. He also does not forsake us in this Life. When we have Jesus Christ, we always have what we need. And so this morning, as we participate in the Lord's Supper, let's allow it to redefine provision for us. Let's recalibrate 
what need is. Let's look to what God has provided and ask the question and ask the Spirit for the courage and the power to believe it that what we have in Jesus Christ is all that we need. Let's take a moment to pray to that end. I'll gather us back together with a prayer of blessing before I give some instructions on receiving the Lord's Supper this morning. All-knowing, all-loving, and all-powerful Father, we pray to you this morning. We ask as we approach the table that you give us conviction, give us faith in your holistic provision. We are a people, we confess, that are addicted to much stuff, We often look at what we do not have and we are tempted and oftentimes go beyond temptation to blame you for that. Help us, Father, instead to see, to know. Help us to believe in true blessing, the blessing that satisfies, the blessing that lasts, the blessing that matters. Help us Father, beyond our ability to be content in the blessing of Jesus Christ. Use this supper, use this time where we eat bread and we drink of the cup to place our trust and our faith in you as our good Father who loves us, knows what we need, and amply provides it. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.